You're listening to TIP. Hey, everyone. On today's show, I sit down with Preston Pish to discuss all kinds of different stock market investing strategies that you can implement with your portfolio. Be sure to listen all the way to the end because Preston takes one of my questions, spins it on its head, and provides fantastic advice on investing in entrepreneurship as a millennial. Preston is a graduate of West Point and Johns Hopkins University, the founder of BuffettsBooks.com, and co-founder and co-host of We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. I hope you guys enjoy this fantastic conversation with Preston Pish. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Robert Leonard, and I am very excited to have Preston Pish from We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network here with me today. Welcome to the show, Preston. Robert, great to be here. Pumped to be with you. I want to start today's conversation by talking about an investment strategy that seems to be really popular amongst millennial and new investors, and that is day trading. Day trading is when you buy and sell stocks very quickly in the stock market, usually holding them no more than for just a day or a couple days in hopes to make big profits. And it seems a lot of new investors are brought into this strategy or just investing in the stock market in general using this strategy because gurus market this online very frequently as a get-rich-quick scheme, and it pulls a lot of people in. For me personally, I don't believe in this strategy and I don't follow it, so I have a hard time giving people advice when they ask for how to day trade. But how about you, Preston? What do you think about day trading? I always start with a really simple fundamental idea. How many people in the world, when you think across the, you know, people that have made a lot of money, specifically investing in stocks or whatever financial markets you want to cover, how many of those people become billionaires with that strategy? And so when you talk about day trading, you talk about somebody who's literally putting on a position and then selling it by the end of the day. How many people do I know that are billionaires that implement that strategy without like deep machine learning and you know the really hardcore technical people that have computers that do this? I would tell you, you I don't know any that conduct day trading that have risen to an extreme level of wealth in the market. When I think about other people, call it George Soros, uh, Warren Buffett, Stan Drunkenmiller, people that are billionaires that have implemented strategies, they're not doing day trading. They're doing other strategies, which you know I'm sure we'll talk about on the show. So I always start there because what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to figure out what is the strategy that these people are using? What are all the resources that taught them how to do that strategy? And then how can I read and try to understand what those resources are so that I can try to gain those insights onto how to implement that strategy? Because it obviously worked. So when I think about day trading, I, I don't have a source and I don't have a person that represents you know, extreme success in that strategy. I start there. The next thing I would tell you is, what is your edge? So if you're going to put on a position, let's say you're going to go out there and you're going to buy stock in a company, we'll call it Google. What is the edge that you have to know whether that's going to go up or go down in that 24-hour or you could even say a couple-day period of time? What is it that you know that's driving 
that you know it's going to go up or go down. And I would argue if you ask a person that question, that person's going to not have a response. And if they do have a response, it's probably going to be so superficial deep as to the reason that it's complete, you can completely write it off as 50-50 odds. Okay, best case scenario. That's where I can't recommend the strategy either. That doesn't mean that maybe there's somebody out there that, that could make it work in the future. That's a potential. I would just tell you that I think that it's, it's not something that I can understand how a person can do it successfully. I don't know that they're going to be able to prove too much to you. I completely agree, Preston, that you need to find somebody that's been very successful investing in the stock market and then try and copy what they're doing. But a very important distinction that I think we need to make is that you need to find somebody that is truly successful investing in the stock market, and that's how they made their money. And the reason I say that is because me personally, I thought I was doing exactly that. I thought I had found somebody that was super successful investing in the stock market, and I started emulating them. And that was actually using a day trading strategy for trading penny stocks. And come to find out, thankfully, it was pretty quickly that I realized this, but come to find out they were actually earning more money from selling their courses and being a coach or a mentor to other students than they were from actually trading in the stock market. And while they might have had some moderate success investing in the market, that's not the person that you want to emulate. You really want to emulate somebody that has truly had success investing in the stock market and that's how they made their money, not from selling courses or their paid advertising or all of these other things you could do on the internet these days. Really, you want to follow somebody who is that expert in stock investing. And I'll tell you what, as a, as a millennial listening to this show, you should question everything you hear. If Preston Pish's opinion is that you can't do day trading successfully, you should try to seek out a source and then ask them extremely hard questions, which is what's great about what you're doing. And I, and I love that. Get somebody who has the exact opposite opinion as you. Ask them some really hard questions, and then you know maybe maybe there's something to be learned there. Maybe there's maybe there's a small piece of that strategy that could augment um, the strategy that you have. I don't know, but I think that people. One of the most important things that I've learned from studying extremely successful people is they approach everything with an open mind, and they always approach things with the appreciation that they could be wrong. And I think that that is probably a more of an important lesson than anything else is having that mindset and, and having that openness to other ideas and to listen and ask really hard questions and troubleshoot it. Yeah, that's exactly right. And you have to make sure that you're not falling victim to confirmation bias. You need to make sure that you're not just looking up resources or books or articles that show that your strategy or your thoughts are true. You need to research the other side of it and see if there's any validity to the opposing argument to yours. And that way, so you can make a fully educated decision based on what you think is best. And one more point I want to make about day trading is that you might be able to make a few good trades here and there. You might be able to have a small streak of good investments and that are profitable. But over the long term, it's very difficult to get it right and to be able to day trade successfully. And not only that, but it's really difficult to come out ahead after taxes and commissions when you're day trading. I'll take it a step further than that. So if you were a day trader for the last eight to nine years, okay, so if you're, let's just say you're 30 years old and you started trading as soon as you got out of college, pretty much all you know is that the stock market goes up. That's pretty much all you know, because that's all that's happened since you've participated in the market. Okay. So if you were implementing a day trading strategy 
And let's just say that the market has gone up 70% of the time. If you were, if you went day by day, the market went up seven out of 10 days, right? Something like that, whatever it was. So if you're implementing a day trading strategy, you're there, you're, you're doing the trade every day. It's going up seven out of the 10 days that you participate in the markets. And what are you thinking if you're a day trader? You're thinking, I've got this thing figured out. I'm doing really, really well. What I would tell you is you have to compare that to another strategy. If you would have just taken your money and just bought, never sold anything and just bought over the last same eight to nine year period of time, and you never sold, but you just kept buying the S&P 500, I can't say anything as a guarantee, but I would be absolutely flabbergasted if a day trading strategy beat what I just described as far as the no-brainer, just buy, buy, buy for the last eight to nine years. And so what I think people have to be able to do is they have to be able to objectively look at themselves and compare what it is that they're doing to something else, something else that's easier, something else that literally requires almost no thought whatsoever that would outperform something that is insanely time-consuming insanely fee-based expensive, like you said. And so are you outperforming the market? Absolutely not with what I would suspect you'd have as, as far as returns with a day trading strategy versus something that was just buy and hold. So you've got to compare what it is that you're doing in a very objective way to what other possibilities are that are out there. That's called opportunity cost. So I would tell people to be open-minded to other possibilities, and maybe there's, there's better ways of doing what, what it is that you're trying to accomplish. Before we move into the next investment strategy, I want to dive deeper on something that you just mentioned, and that's the level of effort that it takes to day trade. When you're day trading stocks, you need to be in front of your computer from the time the market opens until the time it closes, or at least for a few hours in between there, which means it's a very time-consuming and difficult task to do. It takes a lot of effort and time. Whereas other strategies, such as value investing, you essentially set it and forget it for a long period of time. So there's very little time or effort commitment once it's set in stone. So that's another dynamic of day trading that you need to take into consideration when you're trying to decide which strategy you want to implement. Now, shifting gears to another strategy called momentum investing. I know it's become an aspect of your portfolio over the last few years, Preston. Can you talk us through what momentum investing is and why you've come to like it? So I have to give credit to a couple different people for this strategy because I was, you know, I thought this was not something that was worth my time when I first started out investing. I had a real strong bias to value investing, which is Warren Buffett's style of investing. But I had uh, some people that have influenced my thinking, and some of those people are James O'Shaughnessy. In my opinion, one of the greatest quant investors that are out there and really kind of put a fire into this entire field of quant investing. And one of the aspects that he talks about is mixing value investing with momentum investing. Now, you had two people, uh, Tobias Carlyle and also Wes Gray, piggybacked on a lot of what James O'Shaughnessy did as far as his research. And they also further confirmed that when you when you mix a momentum strategy and a value strategy that you can produce better results. And this is all back, based on back testing, which doesn't mean that the future results will be the same, but it's very convincing when you look at what they're doing. Here's momentum investing. When a company is doing well, call it Amazon, 
the company continues to accelerate in price because the market continues to pile into it. It now gives them more capital in order to employ, which allows them to further produce better results and so on and so forth. And it drives itself. The success drives upon itself. I know Preston just mentioned quite a few people, and it might be difficult to remember them all if you're listening to this while you're driving or working out or just busy doing something else. So I'll be sure to put links to all of those people in the show notes so that you can go back and check them out later, which I would highly recommend that you do. All of the people that he just recommended are highly successful investors. And those are the types of people that you want to emulate. Like we talked about at the beginning of the show, those are the types of investors that you want to go research and study and try to mimic your investing strategy after. Now, talking about momentum more specifically, it almost sounds like you're timing the market. Intuitively, it makes sense. I understand what you're doing, but it almost sounds to me like you're, you're timing the market. And if you're waiting for certain indicators, isn't it too late for you and you kind of already missed that opportunity? Well, yeah, I, I think that for anybody who thinks they can absolutely nail the top of a market <laughs> and, you, and you're, you're starting your journey, you're going to have some painful experiences ahead of you. I look at it as a stop loss strategy. So if I'm locking in gains and I'm making money and I want to protect my downside risk, momentum for me is a great way to protect my downside risk by understanding what the normal operating volatility is. And if I'm not participating in a company that has insanely high volatility, let's say the volatility, the annual volatility range is 8%, I might lose 8, 10% from the top of whatever it hit. And I'm fine with that because I'm hopefully entering the position using very similar principles and buying them not just based on momentum, but also value indicators. And so I'm able to buy them at a severe discount and I buy them after the momentum changes to the upside and then I hold on to them for a while. So if I, if I lose a little bit on the top, that's, I'm fine with that. What I think is a really, really, really important uh, math equation for people to understand is a very simple but highly misunderstood math equation. And it goes something like this. If you have a stock that rose to $100 and it now drops 50%, you now have to get 100% return to get back to where you were. That's a 50% loss to 100% gain. So now, if you study financial markets and you realize that a business cycle usually lasts seven, let's call it seven to eight years, and it typically has a 50% contraction at that point before it goes on another big giant growth spurt. That means that if you don't protect your wins and you don't protect your principal and you participate in the whole downturn and you keep locked and loaded into that downturn and you have a 50% loss, what you're really kind of losing there is the long time that it's going to take to get back and gain 100% return to get you back to the principal that you're at. So Buffett has a saying, he says, rule number one is don't lose money. Rule number two is refer back to rule number one. And what he's really getting at with that is this is this math equation that I'm saying is really important is that if you lose 50%, it takes 100% return to get it back. And you got to understand that if you're participating in financial markets. Do not lose money. You got to protect your principal. You got to be very defensive in the way that you invest. Now, with all that being said, do you think this is a good strategy for millennial investors to implement? Well, let me put it this way. I don't do momentum investing on its own, period. I don't put on a position strictly based on momentum. I put on a position that starts with value investing principles, 
which involves reading a 10K or 10Q and kind of determining what the value of something is. And we can talk about what that looks like and what that is. And then whenever I determine I think that something is being penalized in the market that has value that I think is giving me a return higher than what like the S&P 500 index could give me, then I'm looking at the momentum indicators to determine whether the pain is over because typically when you're finding great buys, it's because they've been penalized on their market price and the market has sold them off. These companies or financial assets have been sold off in a major way. And so then they become a value because everyone's penalized the price so much, which pushes the yield higher. And so what I'm doing is I'm trying to find those companies, those fixed income securities, whatever it is that I think is, has been severely penalized, but then I'm looking for the statistical change in the momentum. So I augment the, the momentum with a value-based approach in order to not catch the falling knife, which is a term that's used in value investing, and that I can kind of, I hate to use the word time, but I think I can get my timing right a little bit better whenever I augment my value investing approach with momentum investing. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys, about a year and a half ago, my wife and I got married and one of the most stressful parts of our relationship has been trying to join our finances together. We all know that money issues are a leading cause of divorce, but Monarch, the top rated personal finance app, has built in collaboration features so that you can invite your partner at no extra cost. Together, you can see all your finances, collaborate on your budget, and get insights on your cash flow and recurring transactions. It's the easiest way to manage your household finances. Unlike other personal finance apps that we tried, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving the product, and they release updates every two weeks and allow customers to submit suggestions, vote on requested features, and view the product roadmap. Most importantly, they never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, my wife and I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners on this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com MI. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y.com slash MI for your extended 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com slash MI for an extended 30-day free trial. Do you guys ever feel overwhelmed with all that's going on in the markets and feel like you just can't keep up with the day-to-day news headlines? Today's show sponsor, Yahoo Finance, is my go-to solution to keeping up with today's top news and stay informed with what is happening globally. With Yahoo Finance, I'm able to see the biggest trends and biggest movers in the stock market, what is happening with interest rates, major geopolitical events, and much more. If it wasn't for Yahoo Finance, I would have no idea that Tesla is laying off 10% of their staff or why iPhone shipments are down 9% year over year. Yahoo Finance also has a number of other cool features, including a tool that lets you link in all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Yahoo Finance is one of my favorite tools I use in my investing toolkit, and it's what I use each morning to kick off my day and stay in the loop with what's happening in the markets. Join more than 90 million monthly users today and get comprehensive financial news and analysis at yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate out there, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, 
a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing member of FINRA-SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into a partner bank where they can earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. All right, back to the show. For all the reasons you've mentioned and that we've talked about, I've begun implementing a momentum aspect into my personal investing as well. But just like you said, it's not momentum on its own. It's paired with value investing or at least another strategy. Now, I want to shift gears and talk about another strategy, and that is screen-based investing or quant investing. What this strategy is, is when you look at the fundamentals or financial statements or key ratios of a business and make an investment decision almost solely based on what those show you. Now, I've used this strategy in the past. This was actually the strategy that I implemented right after day trading that I mentioned before. And I implemented this because I thought that this was what value investing was. This is what I thought Warren Buffett was doing. I quickly realized that that was not what he was doing, and I decided to move away from the strategy. But essentially, what a screen-based or quant-based strategy is, is when you invest in a company based solely on what the financials or fundamentals are showing you. Now, the downside to this is that you miss the entire qualitative perspective of the business. And I want to talk about Blockbuster for a second here. I don't know for sure that they had great fundamentals prior to their bankruptcy, but let's assume that they did as an illustrative example for why it's so important to look at qualitative perspective. So if Blockbuster had great fundamentals, if everything historically had been good because their business had been good up until it wasn't, right? So let's say that they had really good financials, everything was looking good, so you were willing to make an investment because their financials and their key ratios, and on a quantitative basis, everything looked good. But what you're missing by not considering the qualitative perspective is what's coming ahead, the challenges that are ahead. And so if you invested in Blockbuster based solely on a quantitative strategy, you would have entirely missed that Netflix was coming. If you were looking at the qualitative perspective, you might have seen Netflix coming and disrupting Blockbuster's business, and you might have been able to get out in time. And that could have saved you from losing a lot of money. So This is just one example, but it's really important to look at the qualitative perspective of a business. It's not always just the financials. Preston, can you talk to us a bit more about what a screen-based or quant strategy is? Well, I I love your point that you're talking about with quant investing is that you're, you're looking at the previous weather, right? You're looking at all the things that have happened up until time now, but what's so important about investing is you're, you're making capital outlays that are based on what's going to happen in the future and that expectation of what's going to happen in the future. And that's where it, it can get difficult with a quant-based strategy. If I was going to argue with myself, <laughs> I'd tell you that the, the biggest hedge fund in the world and arguably one of the greatest investors of all time, Ray Dalio, uses a completely algorithmic-based decision-making model for every single investment that his hedge fund puts on. And it's the biggest hedge fund on the entire planet with you know, I, I think it's around $200 billion or something like that he manages. So 
that's out there too. So for somebody just to kind of take a, an opinion one way or the other, I don't think is a safe way to do it. I think that there's arguments to be had on both sides of it. I would tell you that a smaller uh, size investor like myself, I use value filters to help me understand what is something I should maybe look at. And then I start implementing my approach where I value and I look at those future cash flows and all those things to try to determine a value. So if I was going to describe value investing, I personally like to use kind of an example for people. So if I was going to ask, and and for people listening to this, just kind of come up with your own answer to this. If you were going to give me $100 and one year later, I'm going to give you some type of profit in return, what would be the number, the dollar amount that you would expect to get back from me to consider that a good investment? So you just gave me a hundred bucks and I'll give you that hundred bucks back at any point in time. But if, if, if you gave me a hundred dollars and that represented like, let's say I had a little tiny business and it was making money and it's going to kick off some profit. How much profit would you expect back from that hundred dollars after one, one year of time? And you don't have to do any work. You just give me the hundred bucks and then a year later. So whatever number you came up with, now you can understand what it means to invest in a stock. Let's just say that if you bought one share of a business, and this is the whole principle of value investing, is that one share of the business is the same as owning the entire business itself. Because all you do is if there's 10,000 shares outstanding, if you add up all those 10,000 shares, that's your, that's your market cap of the entire business. But let's just value one share as if we're valuing the entire business. So if you give me the 100 bucks and I give you one share, what is that number that you're getting back? I'm kind of curious how you would respond to that. What would be the number that you, that you would come up with if you had to answer that question, Robert? If it was a passive investment that I didn't have to do a ton of work on, I'd be very happy with 10 to 20%. Okay. So when when we have an expectation to get a 10 or 20% return on your investment, that would be considered very high growth in the stock market today. So like companies that are doing margins of like 10 or 20%, and that doesn't necessarily mean that that's the kind of return you're going to get, but in this scenario would be, that's a very high return. Most people wouldn't realize that the S&P 500, based on the price that you would pay for one share of the S&P 500 and the earnings that it kicks off, when I say earnings, I mean profit, it's around $3 for every $100 you would invest. You'd get that back one year later. It's at a 3% return based on where the S&P 500 is priced today. So when a person can put it in that context, then they can understand that, hey, I'm investing $100. I'm going to get a profit back one year later, and the profit is $3 out of that $100. That's what the S&P 500 represents today. That is something that anybody can understand. They can understand it very quickly. And, but we're coming up with a value for what we expect to get back based on our investment. So when you buy a stock, it's the exact same thing. So that profit that you're getting back, it's called EPS. That stands for earnings per share. The profit I'll get back out of this company for owning one share of the business. So if you go and buy a $50 stock and you look at the EPS on that stock and it's five bucks, well, your profit that that little business, just think of it as a little micro business you could put on a table for $50 and there's little people in there working and they're making things and they're selling it and they're making a profit. They're going to hand you five bucks back at the end of the year. That's your EPS. That's a 10% return 
This is how people have to think about stock investing because these are businesses that you're buying. This is not some hocus pocus. You buy something, you hope it goes up, you hope it goes down. So what happens with that profit after that $50 company makes five bucks after one year? Well, the company can retain it, they can keep it in their bank account, and they can reinvest that $5 to buy more assets so that maybe next year they can make $6 instead of $5, or they can pay some of that out to the investor, the person who gave them the 50 bucks. So you could pay all of it, 100% of it as a dividend. I could receive literally a $5 you know, addition into my account for being a shareholder of this $50 company. Or you could have a hybrid of both. Let's say I get paid $2.50, the company retains $2.50, and they use that money to grow and become stronger instead of making $5 next year. Hopefully, they're making $5.50 or whatever. This is how stock investing works. This is how value investing, a person who's a value investor is going to look at the business, they're going to look at the numbers, they're going to come up with a value that they think the business is worth, and it's completely based off of return based on how much money they're, they're allocating into the business to be an equity holder of that company. Whenever I'm doing investing, this is how I think. And then I augment it with, call it momentum investing or, or whatever else, because momentum investing is just looking at the price action. Like that's, There's nothing more to it. Whereas value investing is looking at a whole lot more. You're looking at what assets are they going to create next year? What kind of revenue stream is that going to produce? What kind of margin is that going to produce? And ultimately, what's that going to give me on my bottom line? I love that analogy that you just gave, Preston. I think it's so important for new investors to realize that when you buy a stock, you are truly buying ownership in a business. You're not really just buying a blip on a screen. You're really starting to own a small percentage of that business. But that being said, say someone invested in a stock and the company has done very well, just like they expected, profits have grown, but the stock has actually stayed flat or or maybe it even declined a little bit for whatever the reason may be. Maybe the market is just being cyclical or the market's being irrational, but for whatever reason, the stock declined. How can a new investor overcome the mental hurdle of not seeing those profits actually hit their brokerage account? So Warren Buffett, my opinion, probably the greatest investor that's, that's ever walked the planet from like a stock investing point of view. I'd say it's between him and Dalio at this point. Buffett has a quote. He says, the stock market is a voting machine in the short term, and it's a weighing machine in the long term. And so when a person hears that, they're, they're probably thinking, okay, so what in the world does that mean? Well, what it means is everyone's got an opinion. There's, there's craziness driving the short-term market behavior. And that's why I would argue that you can't do it successfully because there's no way of really knowing whether bad news is going to hit in 10 minutes from now and drop or raise the price of the stock. There's no way people can actually know that. That's called insider trading if you do know that and it's against the law. So it's a voting machine and it's kind of going all over the place and it's trying to find what in aggregate people think it's worth. But what Buffett would also tell you is if the price drops and you know that the company is a value. So let's go back to our $50 example. Let's say we bought the company at $50, one share at $50, it makes $5 a year. Some bad news came out, the market got scared and it drops down to $25 a share. But the company's still producing a profit. In fact, they might even be still producing the same $5 profit that they were making before. And if they aren't, maybe it's $4.75 now in the profit. But you can now buy it for $25 and not $50. So what Buffett would tell you is you got to buy more of that stock because it just, it just went on sale. It would be like going into a store and the jeans that you used to buy for $50, you can now buy for $25. It's the same pair of jeans. 
Well, you would buy two pairs of jeans and, and try to sell the other pair or whatever. So in the long term, the stock market is all about a weighing machine. And what he means by that is the person who's accumulating more and more shares at great prices are the people that's going to get a really fat return. Because let's go back to the, to the yield that you're getting on that company. If it's, let's just for simplicity say that the, the profit is still $5 a share, but now you can buy it for $25 instead of $50. Well, when it was at $50, you were making a 10% return. But when it's at $25, you're making a 20% return. So whenever it goes on sale, your yield goes up, assuming that your profits are similar to where they were at before. And this is where it becomes a weighing machine and you need to load up on it. And so it's just a change in mindset. And, and most importantly, it's all about patience. If you think you're going to knock out 100% return on something in six months, you, know, you can do that in some type of markets, but you can also lose 100% of it in those same markets. So if you, if you want to make a lot of money fast, I'll tell you, your risk is sky high. If you want to make a lot of money slowly, your risk is, is maybe lower depending on, on what your approach is and how thoughtful your approach is. But I would tell you, it's lower and it's more methodical. And the person who has the correct protocol that has the right process and the right mindset, and I would argue you're owning a business, folks, whether you want to believe that or not, you're owning a business when you buy a share of stock. Okay, you're, you're an owner at that point. Whether you believe it or not, you're an owner. And the more that you can start to think like an owner, I would argue the more success, long-term success you're going to have. You'll be in the game for a very long period of time if you think like a business owner. I think the biggest takeaway there is the long-term horizon. I think that is so important. Over the short term, a market can certainly be irrational. It can go up or down without reason, really. But over the long term, 5, 10, 15, 20 years, the markets will generally price stocks correctly. And that's why it's so important to hold them for the long term. Now, I want to talk about how you can find stock opportunities. And I want to bring up Peter Lynch. He wrote One Up on Wall Street, and he was one of the most successful mutual fund managers of all time. He managed the Magellan Fund at Fidelity for years. But what his strategy said was that individual investors actually have an advantage over hedge fund managers or money managers because they're able to see hands-on what products are going to be big first. So For example, say you go to Starbucks and you see a lot of people at Starbucks with you. That might give you a hint that Starbucks is a good business and you might want to look into investing in it more. Or you might have noticed that everybody around you is using iPhones. Now that we've talked about a couple strategies, I want to talk about how you can actually find some individual stock picks. And I want to talk about Peter Lynch's strategy. And Peter Lynch is a very successful investor. He was one of the most successful mutual fund managers of all time. He managed the Magellan Fund at Fidelity. And basically, in his book, One Up on Wall Street, he talks about how individual investors like you and me, the listeners and Preston, actually have an advantage over money managers and hedge funds because we're able to make investment decisions based on products and services that we use much quicker than a hedge fund or a much larger institution could. For example, if you went into Starbucks and you saw that every day you went into Starbucks, there was a line out the door, that might give you a hint that Starbucks might be a good opportunity for an investment. Of course, you need to dive into the financials more and do more research than just that. But just by seeing that, you're able to get an idea that Starbucks might be a good investment opportunity. And some of the best investors in the whole world, Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger, use this same type of strategy. Charlie even said at this year's Berkshire Hathaway meeting that everybody in his house, everyone in his family uses iPhones. And out of everything that they own, the last thing that they would want to give up is that iPhone. 
And, and that more or less is why Charlie believes in Apple so much. And to take it a step further, not only can this idea help you find good opportunities, but it can also help you stay interested in investing. If you're investing in companies you don't care about, you might lose interest in investing. But if you're investing in companies that you use every day, and now you can think, hey, I actually own part of this company that makes this product, that might help you keep interest in investing much longer, which would be beneficial for your investing career. Well, I, well some of your points there, you're talking about you can have a fantastic business, but if it's not at the if you can't buy it at the right price, maybe it's not a good investment. So let me just highlight this with the best example I can give you. I'm going to sell you a money machine. Truly a money machine. Like this thing will print money and whatever it prints out you get to keep. I'm going to sell this to you. And so what's the, what's the first thing you're going to ask me whenever I say, I want to sell you my money machine? And, and let's just assume that it's all legal, like the money that it makes, you get to keep. It's no problem, right? I'm going to sell you the money machine. So what's your first question you ask me? How much does it cost? Bingo. How much do I have to pay you to purchase this money machine? And so the money machine costs $10 million. So now what's your next question you ask me? How much money is it going to give me? How much money is this thing going to print per year? It's going to print $100 a year. I'm selling it to you. Like, What could possibly go wrong with buying a money machine? Right? It's literally a money machine and I'm selling it to you for $10 bucks. It's a great deal, right? No, it's a terrible deal. <laughs> this, is, this is the epitome of a terrible, terrible deal because what else could you do with $10 million in a year? Well, you could do a whole lot. If you go out and you even get a 3% return on 10 million bucks, you're making $300,000 a year, right? So <laughs> I use that as an example because there's companies out there, there's stocks out there, there's all sorts of things out there that in a person's mind, psychologically, it's a money machine. It's like Apple. Like You just hear the word Apple. You're like, everybody has an iPhone. Everyone has an Apple computer on the entire planet, I need to own Apple, right? But they're, they're not asking themselves the two basic questions of, well, how much is the Apple money machine? Oh, it's, it's this much. Okay. Well, now that I know how much you're willing to sell me the Apple money machine, how much does the Apple money machine make each year? And then you answer that question. And then you can look at something and come up with an idea of whether that's a good deal or not. And what are you doing whenever you, you come up with the yield, right? You're looking at how much, what's my profit margin each year for owning this? You're comparing it to your other opportunities. You're looking out there and you're saying, well, that's a great company, but it's giving me 2%. And I could go over there and buy this really super boring box company that I am calculating a value of 20% for. I'm going to take the, the boring box company all day long because of the price, right? Because the price is incredible. In fact, it, no one's trying to compete with the box company anymore. Everyone's trying to compete with Apple though. So like, there's all sorts of things. And I'm not saying Apple's a bad pick. In fact, I actually wrote a Forbes article. I don't know. It's probably a year and a half old. But at that time, it was a great value. It was, I was calculating it to be a great value. So it really depends, but you have to look at it from that lens. You have to ask yourself those questions. What can I buy for? What's it going to yield? Just like simple things, but people completely look past that. I really like that example of the money machine, Preston. Being a value investor myself, I certainly know how important price is and I put a lot of emphasis on it myself. 
but I had never heard an example like that or had someone explain it to me like that. I certainly wish I had that when I was just starting out because it it just makes it so clear. It makes a real world example so simple and easy to follow. So if you're a millennial investor or if you're a new investor, I really recommend that you go back and listen to that again at least once, if not twice, and make sure that you really understand how price makes such a big impact on your investment returns. Now, all this talk about price, that provides an interesting segue to the next strategy that we're going to talk about, and that is growth investing. And the reason it's so interesting to segue into this is because those who invest in growth strategies don't necessarily put a lot of weight on the price they're paying, which kind of goes against everything that we just talked about. Companies like this are great in bull markets like they have been over the last decade, but they get hit very hard when the economy slows down and the stock market takes a turn. I know you're a value investor, Preston, so I'm really curious to hear what you think of growth investing. I don't think anything negative of growth, to be quite honest with you. I think that it's a strategy that can work for certain people. I think it's something that absolutely probably has more risk just because of the volatility. If you're dealing with a smaller company that is growing rapidly, sometimes that can be a wonderful thing, especially if there's not a lot of competitors in the space and they're kind of first to market. There's a lot of considerations that you have to take into consideration to trade this type of market well. I would tell you, you have to really, really do your homework. There's also kind of this, I would argue, this kind of dynamic over the last 10 to 20 years where you can get very large growth companies. I mean, Amazon's a great example of just a mammoth company that I would consider a growth company when you look at the top line and the percent of how quickly it's growing. And so you got to ask yourself, is, is that something that's going to be easier for me to project and understand when you're dealing with such a macro size business that I'm going to be able to exit the position maybe a little bit easier without such the, the hit that you'd get with a small cap company that has a new competitor that enters and their growth just literally gets splits in half. And then your 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 stock price goes down seventy or eighty percent in a in a single shareholders call. Those are the concerns that you run into with growth. Is if the top line does not keep pace with, and when I say top line, this is the sales of the business. This isn't the profit. This is the the money as it enters the business before any expenditures are subtracted out. So when I say top line, that's what I'm describing. People that do a growth strategy, they're really paying attention to that top line and how quickly the company's growing. And if they miss any semblance of that growth rate, the company is just going to get hammered. So I think people can do this successfully, especially people that are really well-versed on what the product or the service is that the company is providing and the competitors and the market size and the growth rate of the market. You know, have I done growth investing? Absolutely, I've done growth investing. I don't do it nearly as much as some of my other strategies, but it's something that I have done. And I've only really kind of entered it into areas where I feel like I understand what I'm getting myself into. I'm not just going out there and trying to find growth companies and just then buying them. I'm, I'm trying to participate in areas that I feel like, feel like I understand them well. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable 
advanced and dynamically capable one yet, and redefines sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can also enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate out there, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing member of FINRA-SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into a partner bank where they can earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. I think it's important to note that most of these strategies are not binary. You are a value investor, Preston, but as you said, you add aspects of momentum and you've also done some growth investing. So you can certainly mix in multiple strategies. Maybe you want a value strategy Maybe you want a value investing base with a small percentage of your portfolio allocated towards growth picks. It really just comes down to what you're most comfortable with and what you understand. You don't want to invest in high-flying tech companies that make you lose sleep at night and that you don't understand. But if you find a high-growth company that you believe in and understand really well, and you want to allocate a portion of your portfolio to it, I say go ahead. So let me, let me just provide an example to just shows you how difficult this is, but how people that are implementing this, maybe buying at 200 times sales, come up with a justification in their mind. So let's talk about Tesla. When you look at the market cap of Tesla, the company is 
priced at the same value as uh, like GM and Ford and these. I, I think the market price was as high as like sixty billion dollars, which is just huge for for a company that's only manufacturing the number of cars that they're manufacturing. That I mean, they're just like not even at like, and I don't know the figure, but it's it's around like one percent or ten percent of whatever these companies, these other companies are producing as far as cars. So. Why would somebody pay such a, an enormously high multiple fully knowing that there's no way they're going to take that much market share away from those companies? I would argue, if I was just going to play devil's advocate and, and try to argue on the side of how that valuation could get that high, I would argue that in the future, autonomous driving vehicles are going to come down to a really, really important question. Is this software load the safest software load based on a million plus hours of driving? Okay, that's what people in the future, somebody from 15, 20, 25 years from now, what they're going to ask themselves whenever they get into a car is what software baseline am I operating on whenever I'm riding in this vehicle? Am I riding in the GM software load, which is statistically proven to be the safest software load? Am I riding in the Tesla software load that is hands down five times safer than any other artificial intelligence-based driving system? I believe that what you're going to find is some company is going to emerge as the safest software load, and then it's going to be licensed to all the car companies. The car itself is going to be completely commoditized, and it's going to come down to who can run the safest software load. Because a lot of that's going to come down to the design of a, a deep neural network machine learning based model. It's going to come down to who has run the most data through that deep neural net to come up with the prediction model that's giving such safe results. All of that stuff, I think, is going to come into play. And so if that scenario plays out, now all of a sudden we can kind of understand why a Tesla company could be valued so high if everybody's got to run that software load in the future and all that licensing that's going to be associated with it. Now, as I say all that, and I basically build up this argument for how a company could be valued so high, in the same breath, I'll tell you, none of that has happened at all for any company. Who is leading that charge? Well, you could make the argument that it's Tesla. You could make the argument that it's Google, who's not even really in the car business right now. You could make the argument that it's whoever. And I would put the probabilities of any of those arguments being pretty comparable to probably the top three or four companies that are out there, which could even be Chinese companies because they're probably going to run a whole lot more data than any US-based company in the future. But to be able to say that one of these companies is going to emerge as the winner at this point in time, I would tell you, you are, you are doing some really fancy uh, numbers with your statistics on your projections and your probabilities. So you get into these really deep intellectual arguments with people really, really fast when you start talking about growth companies. And you really got to understand what you're talking about. And not only do you have to understand what you're talking about, you have to understand the statistics associated with what in the world you're talking about. And so I say all that to just try to give people an appreciation of how hard it is to really kind of understand what the future holds, especially when you're dealing with a company with a really high growth rate and a really high premium that's being paid in order to own the equity of that business. To take it even a step further than that, not only do you have to understand the statistics and understand where the business is going, but you actually have to be right. We can think we understand the statistics and where the business is heading and all of that, 
but we could be dead wrong and then our position is completely blown up anyway. Now, in this final part of the episode, I want to talk about the last strategy that we're going to cover here, and that is dividend investing. And so what dividend investing is, is essentially when you buy companies that have a high dividend yield, which means they pay out a lot of their profits as dividends to their shareholders. In general, because the companies are paying out a lot of their profits and dividends and they're not retaining it for themselves and reinvesting it in growth, these companies tend to grow slower. They tend to be more stable than your high growth companies. And for that reason, you usually just get stable income from the dividends, but you don't get a ton of growth or appreciation from the stock. And because of that, this strategy is generally recommended to investors nearing retirement or in retirement because they need less volatility and more income for their retirement time. But I'm curious to get your opinion, Preston. Could a dividend strategy be beneficial for a millennial investor? I personally don't think that it would really benefit a millennial investor all that much. I think whenever you're younger, you have big opportunities to make mistakes and kind of uh, go after the bigger returns. And I would tell you, I would not go after the bigger returns in necessarily financial markets. I would tell you to go after the bigger returns in creating operational businesses. If you, if you really want to create value for yourself, you got you to gotta try to create an operational business. When we study all these different billionaires and all these different people, you know, we, we focus a lot. And I think it's just because it's a bias that Stig and I both have because we thoroughly enjoy stock investing and we like the math associated with stock investing and that kind of stuff. But that's all non-operational subsidiaries that we buy for a business. It's the money that you employ because you don't have a great idea to invest operationally in your own business that you then basically outsource the purchase of some other financial asset in order to get some type of return on that. As a young 20-year-old, young 30-year-old person, you have a big opportunity to go out there, invest in yourself, invest in in something that you can create a low-risk business that can quickly prove whether it's going to be something that works or something that doesn't work, and you can invest that way as well. And I think that that's something that is often neglected and should be talked about way more is, do I invest operationally or do I invest non-operationally? All the stuff that we've talked to up to this point in time is all non-operational investing. It's the stuff that you do where you don't have a great idea to invest in something that's going to give you a 300% return on your money by next year. And when you're operating at a very micro level, call it your business is you, yourself, and, and yourself, you can get those kind of returns on your money if you go out there and you put a little elbow grease into whatever it is you're doing. You can get a 5,000% return on your money if you go out there and you create something. That money's to be had. That's for you to figure out. And I would tell people, start thinking that way. Start thinking, what, what can I do to start my own business? What can I do to participate in a startup or whatever where I'd get a small portion of the equity? That's, that kind of stuff is insanely valuable. And I know I totally shifted gears out of the dividend investing strategy, but I would, but I would argue a value-based strategy where you're investing in a stable business usually has dividends associated with it. And so you're just getting kind of, you're getting some dividends, you're getting some earnings that are being retained inside the business. And so I kind of look at the strategy as being very similar to just a value-based company that's stable. I think one of the biggest hurdles for millennial investors is that they think they need to build the next Apple or Uber in order for their business to be successful. But I just don't believe that that's the case. You could take a couple thousand dollars that you have that you were planning on investing in the stock market and you could invest it in an operational business like you said. 
Maybe it won't become worth billions of dollars, but say the business becomes worth 100000 or $200,000. That's still an incredible return on investment. That's an ROI that is very difficult and highly unlikely that you'll be able to match it in the stock market. And even if it isn't a billion dollars, these types of businesses can go on for a significant period of time. And maybe it's a few thousand dollars a month. That type of money, even if it's not billions, it can change your life. You know, this is going to sound totally ridiculous, but I'm going to say it anyway. You could go out if if you had five thousand bucks. Okay, you could go out and buy yourself the cheapest truck with it, with the cheapest trailer, and you could go buy a thousand dollar lawnmower. And if you had just ridiculous work ethic, you could go out there, start knocking on doors. Next thing you know, you can go buy. You could go spend fifty bucks on a spreader and start selling fertilizer at a markup of of three hundred percent from what you're buying it, and go start spraying yards like. You could get out there, get your hands dirty, work your tail off, but after doing that for three years, you might be sitting on $100,000 of money if you really got after it. You had great marketing, you had great personality when you're there talking to people at the door, selling your service, undercutting every competitor that's out there, dropping your rates, whatever, ask them what the other person's selling their service for, you drop the rates. Like This is just like bare bones, like grit that you could implement literally right now and you could knock the socks off of somebody who's coming out of whatever business degree um, that's now going to go work for some company and make $50,000 a year, but they don't own something. They're working, they're creating value and they're creating a bigger bottom line for another person opposed for themselves. And I mean, I'm just throwing out the easiest, most generic thing I can think of and so for people that are listening to this, there's something that you're great at. There's something that, that in your past and in your history gives you a competitive edge at something. You just got to figure out what that is and what has happened in your past that has put that asset and that opportunity right on your lap. And then just exploit the living heck out of it. And whatever your competitor's doing, go study it, Right study the heck out of it, figure out how to do it better, and then go and do it better. But it requires a ton of work, a ton of effort. But in the end, you'll have something that is extremely valuable. If you're, anytime you're creating equity for yourself through your labor and your time will often produce ridiculous returns if you stay at it and you work hard and you, you try to figure out what your competitive niche is. And not only are you potentially getting better returns by doing that, but you're also likely becoming a better investor. Warren Buffett has a quote saying, I'm a better investor because I'm a business owner and I'm a better business owner because I'm an investor. So they can go hand in hand and they can help each other out and you can definitely do both. And, and you know what? Buffett, 65 years ago, Warren Buffett, when he was like age 16, he was worth $50,000 at age 16 65 years ago. So if you would figure out what that's worth in inflation dollars today, you know, he was worth a couple hundred thousand dollars back then as a 16-year-old. And you know how he did it? With a paper route, throwing newspapers. That's insane. But what it is is it's hard work and it's freaking grit. And that's how this dude got started. That's how this guy crushed it. And so then what did he do with his $50,000? He went out and he started buying pinball machines. And then he worked a deal with 
barber shops to put the pinball machines inside the barber shop and he he would give the barber a cut of the money that came out of the pinball machine so that he would have them on site. So he's there working deals. He's out there buying more assets that he doesn't have to, that don't require his time. Anytime you're starting out, it's going to require your time. But then after you retain some, retain some earnings, then you can go out and buy other assets that then kind of don't require your time. This dude was doing this in his teens and he was crushing it. I guarantee you there wasn't a kid in the entire United States that probably threw more newspapers than Warren Buffett at age 16. There's no way. Preston, thank you so much for coming on the show today. You added a ton of value for the audience and I really appreciate your time. And for those of you who are listening right now, I know I mentioned this briefly before, but I highly recommend you rewind and re-listen to some of that golden information that Preston shared today. Whether it be implementing a new strategy in the stock market or starting a new operational business, take what Preston said today and really put it into action. If you were inspired by this episode and you put what you've learned into action, I'd love to hear your story and what you're building. You can share it with me on Twitter. My Twitter handle is Robert at TIP. That is R-O-B-E-R-T-A-T-T-I-P. Or you can send me an email at robert at theinvestorspodcast.com. I'd really love to hear from you guys and all about what you're building. And that's all I had for this week's episode of Millennial Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.